is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Homestead Education. Hope you are doing fantastic. It's Mandy, of course, here with Angela. Angela, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Gosh, it's Friday. I'm so happy it's Friday. Um, <laughs> most of you all know we chat before we start recording, just kind of catching up on life and stuff. And it's we just both feel like it has been it's busy season. So it feels, and I feel like we could say that about every season, but like uh, it is, it feels like this week has been a month, and um, I'm happy it's the weekend. Ditto. Um, so speaking of busy season, this episode today is going to be all about companion planting. So we hear, we talk about companion planting all the time. And I, by we, I just mean gardeners, homesteaders, farmers, um, that, that classification. Um, and you know, we could get so deep in the weeds about it. I think we're going to try and simplify it to the best of our ability, but it truthfully is, it goes along with a lot of things that we've already talked about, but it, it really is something that I, I believe that if you are going to garden for a purpose, um, kind of more on an intense scale, scale or level, it's, it's so beneficial to companion plant. So, um, I mean, the idea in it, in just kind of like a very basic baseline explanation is you are trying to create harmony in your garden with plants. Um, if we didn't even say anything else, I hope that that, that makes sense. So Angela can kind of go into a little bit more with the permaculture background of companion planting and why it truthfully is so important. But for me, it's all about creating diversity in your garden so that you can attract and bring in and benefit all of the beneficial pests and pollinators and things like that. And in doing that, you don't leave space, if you will, for um, the maybe harmful or not, you know, less desired pests in your garden, not to mention, and we'll go into it, but it's also extremely beneficial for your soil and things like that. What, what do you, what do you think? Chime in. Yeah. So I think you covered it well as a, as someone who tries to implement as many permaculture practices as possible, it makes sense to me to increase your growing space by not just growing one thing laterally or horizontally. You're trying to fit lots of things in a small, I shouldn't even say small space. You're trying to fit a lot of things into your growing space Mm -hmm. and it allows you to grow upward and not outward. We've talked before about the importance of interplanting when it comes to maximizing your space. So you're growing things in the shade of other crops, for example. And when you do that, um, what's kind of cool about companion planting is plants have jobs. You know, we talk a lot about on the farm, our animals have jobs. They contribute in certain ways. Plants can do that too, not just to the homestead or to you as a, as a homesteader or farmer or gardener. They have jobs in that they're providing functions and roles to other plants in the soil, like Mandy said. And so when you group these things together, you start 
lessening your work because the more you're growing in a space, the less you have to weed out. So if you picture your garden, we've all had our growing spaces go to hell and the weeds just choke things out. Think about, picture in your head how tightly Mother Nature interplants weeds. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you can say, well, you can get mildew and the spread of pests and disease, but that's the idea, right? We're trying to prevent the spread of pests and disease by planting intentionally that tightly. And we're planting things that repel pests and disease that tightly. Um, So we reduce our weed load. We um, reduce the need for fertilizing because different plants give and take different things from the soil. And so when we have a wide variety of companions, um, they're all working together to contribute differently to the mycorrhiza and the microbes and the protozoa, all the good things that are in the soil that we can't see. So that's kind of what it is. We're taking plant A and we're finding a friend and we're going to bring in plant B to help it out better together. Always. Yeah. I mean, the idea is, is having one thing that, you know, or or two things together, but the, you know, plant A and plant B, plant A can't do everything, but plant B also can't do everything. But when you put them together, they can. So it's, it's just a, I mean, we say it all the time, just a symbiotic relationship. And so it, it eliminates the plants are going to work together in harmony in your garden, you know, suppress your weeds and, you know, improve your soil health and do all of those things. But it also eliminates things that we have to do as well. I mean, less weeds, like you said, to, to pick. And then it, it fills your spaces with things that you desire. Um, if there's no space for weeds to take over and no space for um, things, you know, to become invasive, then there's less work on the back end for, for you to have to do. You kind of think about it like this. I mean, when you, when we kind of talked previously about planting kind of intensely um, or intensively in small spaces and how much you can actually cram into, into spaces and kind of, you know, the mystifying those those myths of having to plant so far apart and 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 things like that and and yes you know the idea of spacing helps with your root development and and lessens your pest spread and things like that but when you can manage your let's just say raised bed and you and you plant intensively it actually um it, it by companion planting. So, I mean, take, take for example, like the marigold, you can stick those everywhere. They don't take up space. Their roots are so shallow. Um, I mean, they have multiple benefits as, as a pest deterrent. I mean, we plant them literally near every single tomato plant that we possibly can. And then you can also do things, um, like harvest the petals and make things with them. So it's a, it's a multiple beneficial plant. It doesn't take up space, doesn't mess with the long roots of your tomatoes, and it's, it's beneficial. So it's just kind of thinking about things like that. Maybe you can't cram another, you know, you can't plant beans there, you can't put another tomato plant there, but plant something else there so that things that you don't want take over and you're actually benefiting not having that wasted space by something that's going to help. It's just fostering diversity. 
That is the best way that I, if you have a diverse garden, you're going to have diverse pollinators. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have diverse pests. Yes. But you're going to increase the load of beneficial pests, which are going to decrease the load of harmful ones. Perfectly said. Yeah. Marigolds, I think is probably the most well-known yeah. slash common companion because it is so friendly and so many plants are happy to be supported by that. It's, it's an ally to so many things. And we'll get into specific um, companion plant suggestions in just a second here. Um, but I think it's worth noting before we move on that we're saying, yes, you can plant marigolds with just about anything. There are also crops that don't have many friends and have the opposite effect. So there are some things even like the brassicas, your broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts, where you shouldn't plant certain things even the following year because the way that they affect the soil can stunt the growth of crops. When it comes to crop rotation, you would want to bypass that and make sure you skip a year before you would plant, you know, like a nightshade, for example, Mm -hmm. in that bed. So the same way that some plants are beneficial, there are a lot of plants that have adverse effects on their neighbors. Potatoes doesn't have many friends. Cabbage can be difficult to grow with. Um, so it's really important. All you have to do is pop up a quick search on Google before planting anything. Anytime I'm in the garden and I'm working, sowing seed season, transplanting season, I my phone is dirty and nasty because the whole time I'm planting, I'm constantly looking up, okay, wait, what can I put here? Who likes to grow with this? It really does enhance or slow down the yield and the rate of growth of crops based on what you're interplanting with it. Um, And this applies to orchards. We'll, We'll get into this as well in a bit here. That's called guild planting, just planting your fruiting tree with some neighbors that help to support it. Um, But by all means, if all you have is a container garden, you can absolutely apply these principles as well. Understanding which plants are are allies, which are enemies, and making sure to interplant those within your container spaces. Um, Do we want to get into a few of the specifics? Yeah, I just want to point out one thing that you that you said that was really helpful. I think for a lot of people, when we talk about crop rotation with companion planting and what works well, or, you know, doesn't work well, a lot of, I think the idea is kind of misunderstood where um, people think that you can't necessarily plant the same thing in the same spot the next year, or, you know, you can't plant it with something because I, I think the idea is maybe space driven that people but it is not actually I mean yeah you have to have space for your plants but a lot of it is what the plant is feeding to the soil right your soil is alive Mm -hmm. so what that plant has provided to the soil that year prior is still there right you want it to still be there and so then it's going to that's I mean that's why if you are you know gardening year after year in the same garden and things like that, it truthfully does get better every year because your soil is being fed year after year, but you know, versus starting fresh and brand new. Like if you were, I have new raised beds this year. Um, and we very, very intensely manage them at the very beginning with a lot of like decaying matter compost and things like that, because I knew that if I had just brought in, you know, soil and, and did a little bit of compost, it wasn't, it wasn't probably going to be the best. So the, well, I guess my point I'm trying to make is 
you have a good point in, um, in, in telling people or just reminding them that it's not necessarily space driven. It's, it's food. It's, it's food for your soil driven and why things work better with some things and don't work with other things. So yes, we, we can get into specifics with what works. Um, if you, we want to just kind of run down some of the, the basic things that what works with, one another or doesn't i think everybody's favorite is tomatoes i mean it's like if you're gonna you're gonna grow one thing a lot of people that's gonna be their thing for sure yeah and we'll put all this in show notes so don't feel like you have to pause this and write everything down just go to the show notes in your um podcast player and you'll see our little list and this is just a select few if you like this um of what we're going to read here do check out the book, Carrots Love Tomatoes. That is purely a guide on companion planting and um, not friend planting, things that you want to avoid planting together. So yeah, tomatoes, I would go, if you're looking for um, something more ornamental, marigolds, obviously, Mandy just said that. But if you want to maximize your edible growing space, um, lettuce, carrots, and radishes do really well under those branching canopies of tomato plants. And the thing that's really cool about radishes is that spicy smell slash flavor of the leaves is going to repel a lot of the insects that are trying to make their way to the tomato plant. Mm-hmm. When you have that foliage kind of touching each other and, and intersecting, um, naturally that scent, that flavor is going to repel a hornworm or something else from going further deeper into the tomato plant. You know what? Speaking of that, Bob, my mom, has had so many hornworms on her tomatoes we grew, we started a bunch of tomatoes, obviously in the greenhouse. And then I just gave her like six. Like she just has a very small little tomato actually in containers. Yeah. Um, I've never, I'm probably going to go out. I've never, ever, ever had one or seen one in our garden. I've only seen one ever. And why does she have so many you think? I don't, she's found at least six. Anyway, I know totally sidetracked, but, and those honkers are huge. I know. And they sing. They like bite or sting or whatever, and it hurts. No, it's crazy. Um, yeah, anyway, I mean, we could talk about pests, and maybe we should actually do an episode on pests. I found our first squash bugs, which I think are very early this year. That's what gardening is just so interesting because it's never the same year after year. Know. It's never ever the same. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyway, total sidetrack there, but you are right. And the idea there with tomatoes and things like radishes, I mean, you never see aphids on radishes. True. And a lot of that is, is also seasonal and that's because they don't like the, the smell of the spicy. Those types of plants work really well with things like tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that. But really your tomatoes are going to have like your very deepest roots um, because they are you know, things like lettuce and radishes, they have very shallow roots and they, so you're not competing with space. So you can plant them so close. Um, so it's a mutual benefit. Um, or I guess it's, it's multi-benefit is what I'm trying to say. Um, and it also then, I mean, we could go on for forever. Then you have your tall tomato plants and you plant lettuce next to it you might be able to extend your lettuce season, your lettuce growing season by providing some shade. You know, even if you're not trying to do it on purpose, your tomato plant could potentially start to shade out some of that, the sun from the lettuce and it will bolt um, later. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just all, 
it's the idea again behind companion planting and gardening is is figuring out obviously what works best for you and and grow what you want to grow in your whatever type of space that you have, but you're just trying to figure out what you can do in the space that's going to be best for that. I mean, so maybe you've never even thought about planting something for, um, you know, for a shade purpose. We plant sunflowers um, next to beans because it is sunflowers will provide like mammoths, sunflowers your dwarf varieties won't necessarily work but and well we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute with the three sisters gardening but it has nothing to do with um that we use that for we use the sunflowers as a trellis for our beans anyway okay totally sidetracked so yeah, <laughs> no, this is all this is relevant this it's is good very stuff. relevant but goodness um so things like broccoli cauliflower um you're planting it or a good thing to plant it with is your garlic. And so for us, we plant lettuce with garlic. It's kind of the same thing. It's a kind of, you know, the brassica type family. Um, and the idea there is deterring cabbage moss because the little white things that some people might think are really pretty butterflies flying around your garden. No, they're actually cabbage moss that multiply like in droves overnight and they will destroy your cabbage. Yeah. Those um, are those squishy green caterpillars that when you cook up your broccoli, all of a sudden you've got green caterpillars floating at the top of the water or it's just extra protein. Eh, yeah. Um, but it, but it's things like that. So again, shallow roots, your garlic is going to go down a little bit. Also not, not, they don't have deep roots, but it, they are going to work really well with, with your brascas and things like lettuce. You know, there's all these different levels of deterrence when it comes to a garden integrated pest management system. You have environmental things you can do, change the environment, right? So that's like companion planting. Then you have your physical barriers like row cover. Um, so here's the thing with broccoli and cauliflower. So many people struggle with cabbage moths, cabbage worms. And there's this sort of, I don't know if it's a rumor, but it certainly has never worked for me. You can print out something that looks like a white cabbage moth, punch a hole in it and hang it from a string so it kind of flutters in the wind. And they say that they're territorial. So if a cabbage moth is like fluttering around it, other ones are supposed to stay away. I tried that. It doesn't work. The only thing that has worked for me is heavily interplanting garlic and growing the broccoli up in between the stalks, if you will, of the, of the garlic. And then if it, that doesn't work, then I bring in row cover. Cabbage yeah. moths are not an easy pest to deter. I mean, it's a flying moth that's laying eggs and then they absolutely desiccate, right? So I don't know. You, you can go the route of trying the little fluttering moth thing, but personally, I haven't found that to work. Have you? No. And I, I've heard that too. I mean, um, we use row cover. Um, this is like, yeah. also along that line, um, we started to do like a track crop method. Which, oh, sure. Um, so we, it's almost like a sacrifice bed where we plant the same cab. We have cabbage, kale, and a couple Brussels sprouts. And it's very close in proximity to the few beds that we have row cover on that have Brussels sprouts, cabbage. Um, I think that's really it in there. And, um, you know, the row cover, it, they still get the moths 
will still find a way to get under there. Definitely, definitely lessens the amount that you have to deal with. Absolutely. But the idea behind trap cropping is also, it's kind of this, it's kind of along the lines with companion planting. I mean, you kind of have plants that you sacrifice to the pest and let them completely get destroyed versus letting all of them get destroyed. Um, and I think it's actually been, this is the first year that we've done it. So I can report back, but I think it's, it's, it's been largely helpful. Yeah. Um, but no, the little fluttering thing, I don't think they're territorial at all. I think that's a huge myth because I'll go out there and there'll be like 20 in the bed. Yeah. Well, obviously you're all friends with each other. So <laughs> you're not territorial. Shared territory. Yeah. It's like maybe they're collectively territorial as a unit, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's like a, okay. like a family. Yeah. Um, cucumbers. I've never really had issues, knock on wood, with cucumber beetles. Um, but if you do in your location, again, go back to trying radishes. Turnips could also work. Anything that has sort of a spicy flavor to it, that's going to be something in the mustard green family. Um, also, tansy heavily repels Japanese beetles anywhere in your orchard, in your growing space, in your ornamental gardens. If you find that uh, your mustard greens, your turnips, or your radishes aren't working, perhaps give tansy a try. That is, that's a very beneficial plant, but it does come with a caveat. It can be, um, I mean, it is toxic and it can be um, abrasive to some people's skin. It can cause contact dermatitis. So just know that you need to use gloves when handling tansy. Japanese beetles have been just in, in like paying attention um, all to our own, but um and just kind of social media and seeing folks, I think that they are bad this year. Um, we like three years ago, they were terrible. We didn't have very many last year. Um, and yeah, so, there's a cycle to it. And I think that we need to do some more research when it comes. I mean, I think that they live under the, I'm going to sound not educated at all about it right now, but I should, I mean, all I know is how to kill them, but, yeah. um, or, or, you know, get rid of them, but they are very bad this year on our raspberries and blackberries and then our apple trees. I've no, like I, wow. they are, they are completely engulfing the, like the, the small developing apples and just destroying them. So maybe, maybe it's geographical base, like everything. Yeah. But that's interesting to hear. So last year I planted these guilds and again, we're going to talk about that yeah. around my fruiting trees. And I've been waiting for my fruiting trees to get annihilated by the Japanese beetles. You know, I watch, I practice a lot of phenology. So once the morning glories bloom in gardens, you can kind of expect that Japanese beetles are going to arrive. And sure enough, the morning glories are here. And I've seen a few Japanese beetles. My trees are untouched with the exception of one, which is an apple maggot issue. It's not a Japanese beetle issue. But one thing that was interesting is I planted comfrey alongside um, a dwarf cherry tree last year, and the comfrey got massive, and the stalks and the flowers grew up in between the branches of this cherry tree. It's a short cherry tree, right? And that is always the one that's like the sacrificial fruiting tree. The Japanese beetles love it. It's pristine. There is nothing. It's crazy. I mean, I think if anybody, if anybody, if you're listening... If anybody's listening. Um, yeah. Well, one person. Is there one person listening? <laughs> it is. I, I think that what I'm trying, what I, 
the point I want to convey about all of this is, I mean, we all deal with it, right? So we're talking yeah. about all this. I know we're kind of getting off a tangent about pests, but this is directly obviously related to companion planting. So maybe potentially what you're doing is actually truthfully working. Could and, be. Um, I mean, that's the idea, right? So it, I don't know. It, it is very cyclical, um, but they're bad here this year. And um, so I don't know. I'll maybe have to plant some tansy. Some tansy and some comfrey. Get going on that. But you touched on squash bugs that you have yes. started to see some. Yes. And I think that is overwhelmingly the pest that I get the most questions about. Yes. Because they seem to be that once they show up one year in your garden, mm-hmm. you can never get rid of them. Well, there's actually a few companions that can help to kind of keep them under control. Really, it largely comes down to garden sanitation, though. Yeah. You want to touch on that? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, yesterday, I mean, this is fresh, like 12 hours ago. I started, I saw some eggs. I ripped off some leaves and squashed them. And then it's like, whoa, then they're just like out there and um, they will just destroy your plants. So um, I, what you want to do in regards to sanitation is taking out the plants and burning them. So you never want to compost them. And then I would even go as far as not planting squash or anything like that there for, I would say a couple of years. If you have the ability to completely plant something else there, then I would. So um, for us, what I did is I, um, ripped them out and they went to our burn pile last night. And, um, you know, you actually still, it, you might be pushing it for time or zone six, but I, I plant, I mean, there are some zucchini varieties that are, you know, late 50 days. And so you potentially, if you could get, an, if you have your pollinators around and things like that, you could potentially plant, um, and still get a harvest. I do think that they're early this year. So that might be a, uh, you know, a kind of backwards beneficial thing if you are having to tear them out, but yes, tear them out, your plants, all the roots, everything do not just put them in the compost pile. Don't leave them there. There's no way you're killing all of those little squash bugs. There's hundreds and, um, then don't plant your squash there again next year. But like you said, you can plant things like nasturtium. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean is another super big powerhouse in the garden. I think it's kind of linked um, in the same way as marigolds, and it might. I think it's a, a plant that is kind of like behind the times, or you know, a lot of people have always known about marigolds, but nasturtium. I mean, it's more like a trailing type vining flower. But again, when you talk about having something that's beneficial and deterring pests, it also takes up little to no space, very shallow root depth. And the foliage, flowers, and seeds are edible. So when you, you know, I'm not, you know, don't plant it and then take it all away. But, um, I mean, that's that's a multi-benefit for your garden. So though you can plant nasturtium with squash and things like that. But uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that a lot of gardeners, myself included, yourself included, we deal with it. And it's very, it's, it's very difficult to manage. Um, row cover doesn't help because of their boring and things like that. So, yeah. And that's where crop rotation comes into play because they're in the soil. So if you get them one year and rip them out, you can't plant them in the same spot the next year. They're already in the soil and the females 
they survive. They overwinter in the soil. They overwinter in plant debris. So anywhere where you might have um, a, a stalk of the stem or maybe like a hardy leaf stem, they're going to burrow in there and they overwinter in there, which is why they need to be burned and why they can't be composted. I actually had a lot of issues with squash bugs until I started growing pumpkin outside of the garden. And for a while I was growing it in and around the compost heap because there's always fresh compost. So the soil is ever changing, right? I'm always taking and removing. But then recently I really got into just planting them in my woods. And the number one question I get about planting pumpkins and squash in the woods is, well, don't they get enough sunlight? They do. Because here's what happens. You start with a relatively sunny location to begin with. So you're already guaranteed at least part sun. But then they trellis upward on the trees. And so what ends up happening is they are off the ground. They are physically removed from the environment where the squash bugs live. You're no longer, it doesn't matter if it's a jack-o'-lantern. I've had Yardale pumpkins growing off the sides of pine trees. I'm serious. I have pictures of it. You're, you're allowing them to grow and get all of the nutrients that they need from the soil, but they are trellised. And squash does really well when trellised. So do melon. Mm-hmm. And you're decreasing your um, your threat of squash bugs if you just give them a different environment, a little bit of a gro- you know a growth habit change. So I like to grow my um, my squash, my pumpkin, yes, with marigolds, yes, with nasturtium, but I really just like to plant them around trees so that they can climb. And I have found fruiting trees to be helpful. Yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense. Uh, it might be a good thing for some folks to try. I mean, it eliminate. I mean, it takes. Uh, cause like they take up a lot of space in your garden too. So it, it kind of gives you back a little bit more space. And then also if you dealt with it, it's not going to necessarily, you know, count out someplace where you would potentially want to plant next year. So that's, I mean, and it also is a really good point with, if you have the potential to, uh, vertical grow your squash or things like that. I know some people will actually even tie up their zucchini plants instead of letting them like get big and flop out because again it's 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 kind of like why we trim back some of the the leaves on our tomato plants we don't we don't really do intense pruning here um or you know removing suckers or anything like that but what we will do is make sure there's enough airflow but anything that touches the ground for your soil because you know like that's how diseases spread so it makes perfect sense with um, squash as well. Um, another thing that, or another, and again, this is all going to be a notes, but peas, when we talk about, um, planting things that have a multi-benefit peas will give nitrogen back to your soil. Um, so that's another thing, uh, like planting around tomatoes and peppers and things like that. Um, but I'm going to skip down in our notes too, because the, again, the idea behind community planting is to create a symbiotic relationship with your garden and everything and your soil, which is very much alive. So it's like your little ecosystem under your feet. And if you can help the soil by planting certain things that will add nutrients back to the soil, it's kind of the same situation as companion planting. You're helping plant A by plant B and plant B, you know, they're helping each other. Well, you're also helping. It's kind of like a, it's like a lasagna. Um, mm-hmm. 
effect. So you're planting things that are going to work well with each other. And they're also providing nutrients for the soil, you know, pest deterrents and things like that. So it, it might seem like it's too much. It might seem like it takes a lot of time to do this research or, you know, just like Angel said, just have your phone in the garden when you're planting and you're like, I have this little space. What will work well here? What are the benefits? Does it plant well or does it, you know, grow well with this or not? And, and, and just start to do stuff like that. It will become kind of second nature as the days go on, but yeah. Or keeping a notebook. I'm going to, I'm the first one to admit I, every year I fully intend to keep good planting records and by now I'm over it and I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a good idea at the time. It seems like a really great idea. But then when you're harvesting and processing and growing, it's like yeah. the last thing I'm going to do is sit and write it down. So what I did is kind of when I'm excited about gardening in the wintertime, but I can't actually garden, I, I pick out my crop varieties that I'm going to grow. And then I start just jotting down in my journal what those companions are. Mm-hmm. And then you have this list that's catered exactly to what you're planting and just take it out into the garden with you and be like, okay, so when I'm planting my peas, what am I putting with this again? Yeah. Just make it part of your garden plan or your garden design. Um, we did list a whole bunch of other crops. I think we can probably just leave those in show notes if you're cool yeah. with that. Yeah. And we'll jump down to fruit tree guilds. You get the idea, hopefully by now, that you're giving plants jobs and they're helping one another. So my favorite, I, I, I geek out over this. My favorite illustration of companion planting is the orchard because we have guilds. And I touched on that before. So a guild is a little neighborhood, if you will, of seven friends. Okay. The first friend is our tree, the main thing that we're protecting in the first place. So let's just say an apple tree, but then they have six friends around them. So cool. They have six allies. The first would be a pollinator attractor. So things that's going to bring in not just honeybees and native bees, but things that's going to attract predatory beneficial wasps and things that are going to help to keep the insect population in check. So we have our tree, we have our pollinator attractor, then we have our insect repeller or a pest or even disease repellers. There are plants that will keep blights and certain things that affect fruiting trees away. Then we have weed suppressors, things that grow densely around the tree to try to keep the amount of weeds down. That is not to be confused with a natural mulcher. A natural mulcher is going to be something that covers the soil and keeps moisture in, not necessarily plants out. And then the last two members of the guild are going to be your nitrogen fixers. Mandy said with peas, they pull nitrogen from the air and they sink it into the soil. But then we also have our nutrient accumulators that typically will have a long taproot system that reach down deep within the soil to pull up nutrients that's already there and help to give it to the neighboring tree. And so all of these things work together and they can certainly be, there can be one plant that serves more than one function. So if you were planting mint, for example, it grows very densely. It helps to protect and choke out weeds but it also attracts so many beneficial wasps. And so sometimes you can start to have these stacked functions with your guild members. I think it's the coolest thing. It is cool. I mean, it's all linked back to planting things that are, that are helping one another. I mean, it, it, but it's also a way to maximize your space, your growing space, 
um, in maybe a way that you haven't thought about before, right? A lot of people don't think about guild planting. They just think about plopping a, you know, a fruiting tree out in their field or wherever, the backyard, and that's it. But yeah. you can do so much more with it. Yeah, and I think one thing that maybe is worth mentioning is, you know, we talk about with apple trees in our orchard episode that they need to have a pollinator friend somewhere else on the property, right? Within enough proximity that bees could transfer pollen from point A to point B and, and fertilize the plant. Well, when you're looking at a guild, these, these friends, these allies, they need to be planted immediately surrounding the tree. It wouldn't be enough to have an apple tree on your property and then have mint growing somewhere else. That's not doing anything in the immediate vicinity of the tree. Right. So these these guilds are created within a certain radius around the trunk of the tree. So I do both squares and circles and it just spans like somewhere between four and six feet surrounding the tree. And again, it's interplanted very tightly because if you look at trees in nature, they are planted very tightly with items underneath them, right? Because otherwise weeds are going to move in. Mother nature is going to put something else there instead. Now, if you have an orchard and your trees are in rows and it would be something that's more of a commercial operation, you can still do guilds, but you can do it in a linear fashion. So between apple tree one and apple tree two, in a linear style, you could plant your guild members between. And then when you get to the next tree, repeat the pattern and start over. You don't need to do circles around every single one. Um, But if your trees are spaced few and far between, then your guilds would be better suited for circles and squares. You know, it's kind of a good transition into a lot of people, the Three Sisters Garden. Yeah. We wanted to cover that. And um, I don't know if you, if if you, not you, Angela, but you and (laughs) you. I don't know if you know what it is. We actually don't implement it very at all here. I I never have. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. I I do like it. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell people what it is. (laughs) I mean, I I know what it is, but. I know you know what it is. Mandy's a master gardener. Let's just remind everyone of that. She knows what she's talking about. So a three sisters garden originated from indigenous peoples to the United States. And it's this both beneficial for the plants and the soil approach to planting where you would have three main members. You have corn, beans, and squash, a pumpkin or a gourd of some kind. And sometimes there's even a fourth sister, which would be a sunflower. But it's a really cool idea that first you plant your corn and you wait for it to get established, like usually around six inches or so. And that grows up and it becomes a natural trellis same with the sunflower, very strong, sturdy stalk, right? For beans or peas to grow up and spiral around. And so you plant that next. And then you wait a little bit longer. You wait for that that bean or that pea plant to get established. And then you're going to come in and interplant squash or gourd seeds. And what ends up happening is they, as they grow, they sort of flow and trail through all of these stalks Mm -hmm. and they provide cover to the soil and they're shading out the soil to help retain moisture and they are drawing in beneficial insects with their large blossoms. And so it just creates this really cool densely interplanted system. Now I'll be honest, this is kind of what gave me the idea to grow pumpkins and gourds. 
out in the forest um, because my squash don't stay on the ground. They like to grow up around the corn stalks. Have you, oh, you said that you didn't. Well, you had gourds growing with sunflowers at one point. Yeah. I mean, and it's kind of similar with the beans and sunflowers. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a way to get, I think it's a creative way to uh, maximize your space, but also um, by growing vertically, we, and we've talked about it, it just, you know, eliminates a lot of pests and things like that. We do grow um, like a honey nut squash and like a smaller butternut variety up fences and things like that. You're right. They just naturally want to climb up. Yeah. Um, so if you plant them near something, they're going to go up. So, I mean, yeah, if you don't have a fence or you don't have a trellis or something like that, then yeah, do it, do it by trees or something that would hold up, um, hold up a vining plant, which is the idea behind the three sisters garden. I mean, I know that the idea dates like way, way, way back and there's a lot of history there, but um, if for the purpose of the conversation, the idea I, I believe truthfully is just creating harmony in the garden and having things that work well with each other that are improving your soil and also, um, help, you know, beneficially helping one another by, you know, they, they all had different de- root development systems. They grow differently. And, and so they just all work very well together. And I think that, that in general is just the message we're trying to convey. You, you know, we both uh, agree with kind of getting away from just like the row crop, very much um, mono growing, you know, everything is the same and, and things like that. And you're doing um, yourself more service by densely planting different things for a multitude of reasons, which I hope that we've kind of explain yes amen yeah you might find yeah I'm, I'm visualizing on the property here our um our wine berries and our blackberries are all over they grow naturally here and I'm kind of visualizing how they grow right there's a ton of them very densely so it could be considered a berry patch for all intents and purposes but that doesn't mean they grow in isolation They are still growing underneath even walnut trees. They're not affected by that junglo side or whatever it emits. But I mean, there's natural grasses there. There's fruiting trees. There's nut trees. There's Russian olive trees. There's all of these native plant species that grow in and around the berry patch. Mm -hmm. So you can still be a corn farmer, an apple orchard keeper. You can still have your main cash crop. Interplanting and companion planting doesn't mean you're diluting your yield. It doesn't mean that you're growing less of your desired crop. You're enhancing it and you're probably even, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you're going to increase your production. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I think that, that that's it. We're done. <laughs> that's a really, really good way to, I mean, wrap it up. It is a really good explanation and um, way to end that, you know, you are by doing by companion planting and intensively managing your garden and your space, you're not taking away from what you actually want to grow. You are truthfully um, filling your space with um, more things that you might want to grow and it's all beneficial to, to one another. So, yeah. I mean, if you fit 12 tomato plants in your raised bed and you're going, I really want 12 tomato plants in my raised bed, do it. Yep. But what we're saying is, 
fill in the gaps mm-hmm. with other things that you can use and or at least that main tomato plant can use. Yep. That is the, that's the idea. Just diversity in your garden. And so we'll put all this stuff in notes. And as always, if you have questions, reach out. Um, and we really hope your garden is doing well. I mean, we're kind of like middle of the road season. So it's starting, I mean, to get really busy and, and we know. So thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.